welcome back everyone to 1001 Classic Short Stories and Tales. As most of North America, England, and France knows, recognizes, and remembers, June 6th of this year marks the 77th anniversary of D-Day, the day the Allied forces invaded the German-held beaches of France at Normandy. The legendary newspaper journalist Ernie Pyle was there to record what was happening there, and he wrote three columns about D-Day, celebrating America's success there. The people back home loved him because his columns often mentioned names and hometowns. Sadly, Ernie was killed in 1945 by a Japanese sniper bullet just months before the war ended, but his love for his country still lives today in his writings. And now, a pure miracle. The first of three D-Day columns included... And now, a pure miracle. Normandy Beachhead, June 12, 1944. Due to a last-minute alteration in the arrangements, I didn't arrive on the beachhead until the morning after D-Day, after a first wave of assault troops had hit the shore. By the time we got here, the beaches had been taken and the fighting had moved a couple of miles inland. All that remained on the beach was some sniping and artillery fire and the occasional startling blast of a mine geysering brown sand into the air. That plus a gigantic and pitiful litter of wreckage along miles of shoreline. Submerged tanks and overturned boats and burned trucks and shell-shattered jeeps and sad little personal belongings were strewn all over these bitter sands. That, plus the bodies of soldiers lying in rows covered with blankets, the toes of their shoes sticking up in a line as though on drill. And other bodies, uncollected, still sprawling grotesquely in the sand or half hidden by the high grass beyond the beach. That plus an intense, grim determination of work-weary men to get this chaotic beach organized and get all the vital supplies and the reinforcements moving more rapidly over it from the stacked-up ships standing in droves out to sea. Now that it is over, it seems to be a pure miracle that we ever took the beach at all. For some of our units it was easy. But in this special sector where I am now, our troops faced such odds that our getting ashore was like my whipping Joe Lewis down to a pulp. In this column, I want to tell you what the opening of the second front in this one sector entailed, so that you can know and appreciate, and forever be humbly grateful to those both dead and alive who did it for you. Ashore, facing us, were more enemy troops than we had in our assault waves. The advantages were all theirs. The disadvantages, all ours. The Germans were dug into positions that they had been working on for months, although these were not yet all complete. A hundred-foot bluff a couple of hundred yards back from the beach had great concrete gun emplacements built right into the hilltop. These opened to the sides instead of to the front, thus making it very hard for naval fire from the sea to reach them. They could shoot parallel with the beach and cover every foot of the beach for miles with artillery fire. Then they had hidden machine gun nests on the forward slopes, with crossfire taking in every inch of the beach. These nests were connected by networks of trenches, so that the German gunners could move about without exposing themselves. Throughout the length of the beach, running zigzag a couple of hundred yards back from the shoreline, was an immense V-shaped ditch fifteen feet deep. Nothing could cross it, not even men on foot, until fills had been made. And in other places at the far end of the beach, where the ground is flatter, they had great concrete walls. These were blasted by our naval gunfire or by explosives set by hand after we got ashore. Our only exits from the beach were several swales or valleys, each about one hundred yards wide. The Germans made the most of these funnel-like traps, sowing them with buried mines. They contained also barbed wire entanglements with mines attached, hidden ditches, and machine guns firing from the slopes. 
This was what was on the shore. But our men had to go through a maze nearly as deadly as this before they even got ashore. Underwater obstacles were terrific. The Germans had whole fields of evil devices under the water to catch our boats. Even now, several days after the landing, we have cleared only channels through them and cannot yet approach the whole length of the beach with our ships. Even now, some ship or boat hits one of these mines every day and is knocked out of commission. The Germans had masses of these great six-prolonged spiders, made of railroad iron and standing shoulder-high, just beneath the surface of the water for our landing craft to run into. They also had huge logs buried in the sand, pointing upward and outward, their tops just below the water. Attached to these logs were mines. In addition to those obstacles, they had floating mines offshore, land mines buried in the sand at the beach, and more mines and checkerboard rows in the tall grass beyond the sand. And the enemy had four men on shore for every three men we had approaching the shore. And yet, we got on. Beach landings are planned to a schedule that is set far ahead of time. They all have to be timed, in order for everything to mesh, and for the following waves of troops to be standing off the beach and ready to land at the right moment. As the landings are planned, some elements of the assault force are to break through quickly, push on inland, and attack the most obvious enemy strong points. It is usually the plan for units to be inland, attacking gun positions from behind within a matter of minutes after the first men hit the beach. I've always been amazed at the speed called for in these plans. You'll have schedules calling for engineers to land at H hour plus two minutes, and service troops at H hour plus 30 minutes and even for press sensors to land at H hour plus 75 minutes. But in the attack on this special portion of the beach where I am, the worst we had, incidentally, the schedule didn't hold. Our men simply could not get past the beach. They were pinned down right on the water's edge by an inhuman wall of fire from the bluff. Our first waves were on that beach for hours, instead of a few minutes, before they could begin working inland. You can still see the foxholes they dug at the very edge of the water, in the sand, and the small jumbled rocks that form parts of the beach. Medical corpsmen attended the wounded as best they could. Men were killed as they stepped out of landing craft. An officer whom I knew got a bullet through the head just as the door of his landing craft was let down. Some men were drowned. The first crack in the beach defenses was finally accomplished by terrific and wonderful naval gunfire, which knocked out the big emplacements. They tell epic stories of destroyers that ran right up into shallow water and headed out point-blank with those big guns in those concrete emplacements ashore. When the heavy fire stopped, our men were organized by their officers and pushed on inland, circling machine-gun nests and taking them from the rear. As one officer said, The only way to take a beach is to face it and keep going. It is costly at first, but it's the only way. If the men are pinned down on the beach, dug in and out of action, they might as well not be there at all. They hold up the waves behind them, and nothing is being gained. Our men were pinned down for a while, but finally they stood up and went through, and so we took that beach and accomplished our landing. We did it with every advantage on the enemy's side and every disadvantage on ours. In the light of a couple of days of retrospection, we sit and talk and call it a miracle that our men ever got on at all or were able to stay on. Before long you will be permitted to name the units that actually did it. Then you will know to whom this glory should go. They suffered casualties. And yet if you take the entire beachhead assault, including other units that had a much easier time, our total casualties in driving this wedge into the continent of Europe were remarkably low. Only a fraction, in fact, 
of what our commanders had been prepared to accept. And these units that were so battered and went through such hell are still, right at this moment, pushing on inland without rest, their spirits high, their egotism and victory almost reaching the smart-alecky stage. Their tails are up. We've done it again, they say. They figure that the rest of the army isn't needed at all, which proves that, while their judgment in this regard is bad, they certainly have the spirit that wins battles, and eventually, wars. We'll return with a second Ernie Pyle journal right after these sponsor messages. And now, back to our story. Ernie Pyle's second D-Day missive is called The Horrible Waste of War. Normandy Beachhead, June 16, 1944. I took a walk along the historic coast of Normandy in the country of France. It was a lovely day for strolling along the seashore. Men were sleeping on the sand, some of them sleeping forever. Men were floating in the water, but they didn't know they were in the water, for they were dead. The water was full of squishy little jellyfish about the size of your hand. Millions of them. In the center, each of them had a green design exactly like a four-leaf clover. The good luck emblem. Sure. Hell yes. I walked for a mile and a half along the water's edge of our many-miled invasion beach. You wanted to walk slowly, for the detail on the beach was infinite. The wreckage was vast and startling. The awful waste and destruction of war, even aside from the loss of human life, has always been one of its outstanding features to those who are in it. Anything and everything is expendable. And we did expend on our beachhead in Normandy during those first few hours. For a mile out from the beach, there were scores of tanks and trucks and boats that you could no longer see, for they were at the bottom of the water, swamped by overloading, or hit by shells, or sunk by mines. Most of their crews were lost. You could see trucks tipped half over and swamped. You could see partly sunken barges, and the angled-up corners of jeeps, and small landing craft half submerged and at low tide you could still see those vicious six-pronged iron snares that helped snag and wreck them. On the beach itself, high and dry, were all kinds of wrecked vehicles. There were tanks that had only just made the beach before being knocked out. There were jeeps that had been burned to a dull gray. There were big derricks on caterpillar treads that didn't quite make it. There were half-tracks carrying office equipment that had been made into shambles by a single shell hit their interior still holding their useless equipage of smashed typewriters, telephones, office files. There were LCTs turned completely upside down and lying on their backs, and how they got that way, I don't know. There were boats stacked on top of each other, their sides caved in, their suspension doors knocked off. In this shoreline museum of carnage there were abandoned rolls of barbed wire and smashed bulldozers and big stacks of thrown-away life belts and piles of shells, still waiting to be moved. In the water floated empty life rafts and soldiers' packs and ration boxes and mysterious oranges. On the beach lay snarled rolls of telephone wire and big rolls of steel matting and stacks of broken, rusting rifles. On the beach lay, expended, sufficient men and mechanism for a small war. They were gone forever now. And yet, we could afford it. We could afford it because we were on... We had our toehold, and behind us there were such enormous replacements for this wreckage on the beach that you could hardly conceive of their sum total. Men and equipment were flowing from England in such a gigantic stream that it made the waste on the beachhead seem like nothing at all. Really, nothing at all. 
"'A few hundred yards back on the beach is a high bluff. "'Up there we had a tent hospital "'and a barbed wire enclosure for prisoners of war. "'From up there you could see far up and down the beach "'in a spectacular crow's nest view and far out to sea. "'And standing out there on the water beyond all this wreckage "'was the greatest armada man has ever seen. "'You simply could not believe the gigantic collection of ships "'that lay out there waiting to unload.' Looking from the bluff, it lay thick and clear to the far horizon of the sea and beyond, and it spread out to the sides and was miles wide. Its utter enormity would move the hardest man. As I stood up there I noticed a group of freshly taken German prisoners standing nearby. They had not yet been put in the prison cage. They were just standing there, a couple of doughboys leisurely guarding them with tommy guns. The prisoners, too, were looking out to sea the same bit of sea that for months and years had been so safely empty before their gaze. Now they stood staring, almost as if in a trance. They didn't say a word to each other. They didn't need to. The expression on their faces was something forever unforgettable. It was the final horrified acceptance of their doom. If only all Germans could have had the rich experience of standing on that bluff and looking out across the water and seeing what their compatriots saw. In this third piece, A Long Thin Line of Personal Anguish, Pyle wrote on June 17th. Normandy Beachhead, June 17th, 1944. In the preceding column, we told about the D-Day wreckage among our machines of war that were expended in taking one of the Normandy beaches. But there is another and more human litter. It extends in a little thin line, just like a high water mark, for miles along the beach. This is the strewn personal gear, gear that will never be needed again, of those who fought and died to give us our entrance into Europe. Here in a jumbled row, for mile on mile, are soldiers' packs. Here are socks and shoe polish, sewing kits, diaries, Bibles, and hand grenades. Here are the latest letters from home, with the address on each one neatly razored out, one of the security precautions enforced before the boys embarked. Here are toothbrushes and razors, and snapshots of families back home staring up at you from the sand. Here are pocketbooks, metal mirrors, extra trousers, and bloody abandoned shoes. Here are broken-handled shovels and portable radios smashed almost beyond recognition and mine detectors twisted and ruined. Here are torn pistol belts and canvas water buckets, first aid kits and jumbled life belts. I picked up a pocket Bible with a soldier's name in it and put it in my jacket. I carried it half a mile or so and then put it back down on the beach. I don't know why I picked it up or why I put it back down. Soldiers carry strange things ashore with them. In every invasion you'll find at least one soldier hitting the beach at H-hour with a banjo slung over his shoulder. The most ironic piece of equipment marking our beach, this beach of first despair, then victory, is a tennis racket that some soldier had brought along. It lies lonesomely on the sand, clamped in its rack, not a string broken. Two of the most dominant items in the beach refuse are cigarettes and writing paper. Each soldier was issued a carton of cigarettes just before he started. Today, these cartons by the thousand, water-soaked and spilled out, mark the line of our first savage blow. Writing paper and airmail envelopes come second. The boys had intended to do a lot of writing in France, letters that would have filled those blank, abandoned pages. Always there are dogs in every invasion. There is a dog still on the beach today, still pitifully looking for his master. He stays at the water's edge, 
near a boat that lies twisted and half-sunk at the water-line. He barks appealingly to every soldier who approaches, trots eagerly along with him for a few feet, and then, sensing himself unwanted in all this haste, runs back to wait in vain for his own people at his own empty boat. Over and around this long, thin line of personal anguish, fresh men today are rushing vast supplies to keep our armies pushing on into France. Other squads of men pick amidst the wreckage to salvage ammunition and equipment that are still usable. Men worked and slept on the beach for days before the last D-Day victim was taken away for burial. I stepped over the form of one youngster whom I thought dead, but when I looked down I saw he was only sleeping. He was very young and very tired. He lay on one elbow, his hand suspended in the air about six inches from the ground, and in the palm of his hand he held a large, smooth rock. I stood and looked at him for a long time. He seemed in his sleep to hold that rock lovingly, as though it were his last link with the vanishing world. I have no idea at all why he went to sleep with the rock in his hand, or what kept him from dropping it once he was asleep. It was just one of those little things without explanation that a person remembers for a long time. The strong, swirling tides of the Normandy coastline shift the contours of the sandy beach as they move in and out. They carry soldiers' bodies out to sea, and later they return them. They cover the corpses of heroes with sand, and then in their whims they uncover them. As I plowed out over the wet sand of the beach on that first day ashore, I walked around what seemed to be a couple of pieces of driftwood sticking out of the sand, but they weren't driftwood. They were a soldier's two feet. He was completely covered by the shifting sands except for his feet. The toes of his G.I. shoes pointed toward the land he had come so far to see, and which he saw so briefly. May we never forget the sacrifices that those men made for our freedom. We'll return next Sunday night at 8 p.m. Eastern Time with a brand new story at 1001 Classic Short Stories and Tales. This is your host, John Hagedorn. Reviews are greatly appreciated.